Have you ever experienced the impacts of extreme weather events like floods, wildfires, or hurricanes? How do these events make you consider climate resilience in your community? These questions and more are discussed with this episode's guest, Professor Rob Burchek, an eminent scholar and lawyer in disaster and climate change law, formerly an EPA official who served in the Obama administration, holds the Gothard St. Martin Eminent Scholar Chair at Lola University, New Orleans, he is a senior fellow at Tulane University and the president of the Center for Progressive Reform. He's authored numerous articles and books. His book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience, focuses on our options as we face climate change. Professor Rob Virchik, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thanks for having me, Mia. So you've been advocating for the environment for a number of years, written several books on this. Most recently, the one we'll discuss is The Octopus in the Parking Garage, which is such an intriguing title. It's a metaphor and it's a real occurrence. Just set up the passage that you're going to share with listeners. This is a passage that I've talked about as I've been traveling around the country. And as you know, we've had lots of heat waves and lots of dramatic climate events happening this summer. And so when I meet my audiences, the first thing I say is that they're going to have to use their imagination. And the reason is because in this hot summer, I want to ask them to think about ice. And here's how I start. One spring day, two brothers from an Inupiat village in Alaska set out on their annual hunt for North Pacific walrus on the still frozen plains of the Bering Sea. Dried meats and oils cured from those flippered marine animals sustained the community year-round. The brothers, they were seasoned hunters, having learned the arts of navigation, tracking, and shooting from their father and from their uncles. Years of riding dog sleds on blank slates of ice had instilled in them an uncanny sense of direction. The brothers, they could find their way almost in any condition whether smothered in snow, blinded by glare, or domed by monotonous blue skies. The contours of that world had reached further into their minds on every hunt, like needles of ice stretching over a puddle. But this spring, the hunt was going to be different. That's because on account of unprecedented warming spells, the familiar plains of frozen sea had already melted. Divine surviving ice flows and the congregations of walrus that they would attract would require traveling north several more days, a quest that would put the brothers dangerously far from home and in unfamiliar territory. I'm hearing this story at a conference on climate displacement, migration, and relocation. And it's co-sponsored by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which we call NOAA. And it's being held at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. A village member has flown all the way here to testify about the environmental changes that his people are seeing in the Arctic coast and how they're struggling to cope. Past louvered windows, the coconut palms are waving, but I'm focused on the ice. The brothers, they drive their sleds many miles into the foreign terrain, the speaker explains to us. They finally discover a pot of walruses that have hauled themselves onto the ice and they're able finally to kill two of them. They tie the load onto their sleds, ride back toward the flat horizon from which they had come. But soon they find themselves lost. The dogs, they're exhausted. The snow is kicking up. They decide to abandon the heavy carcasses and make a last effort to find their way home. Hours later, a miracle of sorts occurs. A pair of game wardens who had been following their trail intercept the brothers. Earlier, the officials had come upon the walrus carcasses, the abandonment of which is a federal crime. 
and they set off in pursuit of the owners. You see, the law is meant to target ivory poachers who saw off the tusks and often leave the carcasses behind. Now, the wardens charged the brothers with violating federal law. The brothers, they were elated. The speaker says, and everybody's laughing, because they finally have been saved. Their lives are secure. Everyone returns to the village and the legal issues, they just get sorted out. The speaker's account, vivid and emotionally charged, launched the audience into productive discussions about understanding and preparing for the profound climatic effects that are already threatening Alaska, including ice melt, coastal flooding, and the loss of native species. We agreed that most Americans hardly think about these things and that few of us really care about them. The next day, I spoke with a conference participant who said that he had spoken to his dad on the phone before breakfast and had told him all about the Inupiat brothers. Now, his father, lived in Montana, my colleague told me. And for the most part, he didn't care about climate change at all. He voted Republican, he distrusted the long arm government, but my colleague said that his dad was absolutely riveted by the brother's story. The father asked a bunch of questions about the sleds, the means of navigation, the worried families back home. He wanted to know what the father was gonna do in the village, what the villagers were going to do in managing climate change. He wanted to know, now, it wasn't like this Rocky Mountain Republican was going to go join Greenpeace or buy a Prius or anything. But for an hour on the phone over coffee, he had been engaged. Why do you think that was? I asked my colleague. It was a hunting story, he said. My dad loves to hunt. It was something he could relate to. Well, exactly. We can relate to it. And that's what your book does. So that's just one of many stories, but you relate it to your experiences, you know, growing up in the Las Vegas region or New Orleans. It seems like the places that you've lived have all been heavily impacted. And then, of course, your career has focused on it. But I think that it's highly important to have those personal stories, because when we hear things like for the average non-scientist, 1.5 degrees have changed since industrial times. You know, what does it mean? But you have to illustrate it with a story that you'd understand it's about our own survival, of course, biodiversity and the survival of the planet, but bring it back to, is this the future we want to pass on to our children and how are we prepared and how are we preparing them? I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been you know, working in the area of, of climate resilience that is adapting to climate change for almost 30 years now, and one of the things that I sense when I talk to people is that in some ways it's an easier discussion to have than a discussion about reducing greenhouse gases in the abstract. So we all need to reduce carbon pollution and greenhouse gases. That's job one. The other job one is to prepare for the impacts that we're not going to be able to change. And what I find is when you start talking about this second part first, you can connect with a wider variety of values because some people are super interested in getting together in environmental groups or they're interested in, in international cooperation or they're very interested in the new kinds of technology. But there are people who just aren't interested in those things. But what they might be interested in is protecting their home values. They might be interested in protecting the health of their children. They might be interested in protecting their recreational activities, which might include anything from hunting and fishing to wine tasting, right? And all of those things are affected by climate change. And so if you can get people to think about those things first, I think sometimes they get a more concrete idea of what the issue is and how to fix it. And then they also don't feel as if their central values are being discredited or challenged. 
yet. Exactly. And I want to get to those later in the conversation. You'd mentioned places that have had extreme climate events or climate legislation. You mentioned Hawaii with it. We've had those fires and the Montana. Of course, I want to get to that with the legislation, which has been very heartening for those who've been following. But, you know, in your book, it has these bold and to the point titles, adapt or die, persist and prevail. So as you think about the future of the cities you've lived in, you know, we're living in the century of the city. We're living in a decade of transformation. Cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation, but we're consuming 75% of the world's natural resources and accounting for around 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. And we're seeing it every summer, every year, we face fires, floods, droughts. What do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource, and waste management? I mean, this is a big question. What I can tell you is what I hope they look like, right? What they could look like in a way that that is sustainable and resilient. So actually, cities are a really efficient and resilient way of living if you do it right. So density has a lot of advantages. New York City, for instance, is one of the most energy efficient cities in the country. And part of the reason for that in terms of the number of people compared to their carbon footprint, the reason for that is they share a lot of resources that are provided to a large group of people in a small space, relatively speaking. So that's good. What is hard about cities is that they're the good part, which is that they're dense and have a lot of people in them, is also their bad part. Because if that location is a place that's threatened or is a place that is built in a way that is structurally vulnerable, then there are a lot of people at risk all at once. Like when that sheet of wildfire smoke came into New York City, right? Dark in the skies, turned it orange. And all of a sudden you've got millions of people being exposed to to harmful chemicals in the air. So what do I hope that cities look like? I think cities need to get denser in the areas that are more easy to protect. That's true in New Orleans. It's true in Miami, places like Seattle and San Francisco, the same. You need quality housing that's built denser in better places. Sprawl really turns out to be an enemy. When we look at the the wildfires, for instance, of course, raged across Maui, the culprit often is, well, the culprit is the fire, of course, and then what caused the fire and what fueled the fire. But the other really big problem is that we have a lot of areas of living that have expanded into those spaces. This is not all rich people living in lodges in the forest. It's sprawled out suburban communities in places like Santa Rosa in the Francisco Bay area. These are places where everybody knew they were prone to fire in these wilderness urban interfaces, as they say. But that's where the land was cheap. And so many people moved to Santa Rosa. Well, because there's no housing in San Francisco. And why is that? It's because people, you know, there's a housing crisis and density is something that we need actually in San Francisco if it's built properly. So I would hope that cities have smart growth in smart places, meaning more energy efficiency, and that there is less sprawl into areas, including in New Orleans, into areas that are hard to protect. Yeah, exactly. It's not just about putting the money and adapting with the new technologies. We do have to make certain amount of sacrifice and be realistic about these things. And I think that the problem now, despite the new technologies and A lot of people still feel powerless. They haven't been able to see behind the scenes as you have, you know, working at the EPA under Obama. So could you just reflect and and compare that to, say, what we're seeing now with the Inflation Reduction Act, what your hopes are for that it is set out to achieve? 
Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful about certain things. And there obviously there are a lot of complications and challenges that we have to worry about too. But let's start on the good side of the ledger. Part of the good news, I think, is that we're finally talking about adapting to climate change and becoming resilient. Let's say even 15, 20 years ago, it used to be even among environmental activists and advocates to say that you wanted to adapt to climate change was something that made you look like you were giving up or surrendering. And I write this in the book that even Al Gore kind of said that only losers are interested in adaptation. He didn't quite say it that way. He said it was a lazy strategy because if we're going to prepare for climate change. And that would mean that we wouldn't also work on reducing greenhouse gases. Now, the problem is we have to do those things because even if we stopped all fossil fuel consumption tomorrow, we'd have over a hundred years of heating. So anybody who's alive today needs climate change adaptation. So we're doing more of that. We started it at a federal level, really, I think most seriously in the Obama administration. I was part of the president's task force on climate change adaptation. And we spent just a lot of time thinking about if you're in the Department of Transportation, are your bridges going to be above water in 50 years? If you're EPA and you're funding a water treatment plant that's on the coast of Boston, is it going to be underwater in 30 years? These are very basic ideas. Do you want to spend money on something that's not going to work in 20 years or 30 years? But you have to know about climate in order to work through that. Now, we made a lot of change. A lot of agencies changed the way they funded things and their expectations of building projects because of this. When Trump came along, all of that got knocked away and we were back to funding things that we knew weren't going to work because the government wasn't concerned with looking at sea level rise or these other things. Now, Biden, his first day in office, I think he reenacted all of that. And so all of that's back. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a climate change funding law, really has done quite a bit. It's going to be pouring tens of billions of dollars over 10 years into making the grid stronger in the shadow of climate change. It's already in the first year created over 170,000 jobs. And the private sector in one year has already invested tens of millions of dollars of private money into renewables because they know that now there are going to be customers to buy this stuff because there are going to be subsidies built in and things for that. So it's actually an incredible leap. It's wonderful. It is absolutely not enough. But I think it is proof of concept because it was funny. I watched a part of those GOP debates, you know, and everybody's saying, oh, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act has been siphoning away money from the economy. The exact opposite is true. It's created at least 170,000 jobs in one year. And if you were to take the ROA away, you would be destroying all those jobs. I don't know if there are provisions for this, but I would like to see, because the military has this huge black budget, yeah. I would like to see, if possible, some of that huge military manpower organization and capacity building. It could become more patriotic if that could be used for mobilizing on the ground. We have these great machines for destroying and protecting, but often it just yeah. destroys and has to be rebuilt. But why not building on the ground? It seems like that would be a nice marriage. As you often know, the left and right feel like you vote for one, you have to vote against the other. In the military, often the voters are Republican who are, are strong for the military. But I'd like to see those voices coming together. I think that's a really nice idea. One thing to know is the Department of Defense, among all the federal agencies, probably takes climate change 
the most seriously because they have bases all over the world that are threatened, including Norfolk in, in Virginia. The other thing, though, I think you make this really super point, which is that climate resilience and addressing climate change in general is a national security issue and a homeland security issue. You know, I'm talking to you from Louisiana and we've lost an amount of land in our coast that's about the size of Delaware you know, and since the Industrial Revolution, in part because of sea level rise and many other things, too. And if a foreign country had come and taken a landmass the size of Delaware from the continental United States, there would be military action, right, for something like that. And yet when the oil and gas industry and others do it to ourselves, somehow we give that a pass. And I think that we shouldn't. And part of that is how you frame things. Exactly. You know, when I first came across your book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, I thought, oh, this is a great metaphor. So what does it mean, shape-shifting? Yeah. Of course, it's a real story. Just tell us about the title. So there really was an octopus in the parking garage. Back in 2016 in Miami, there is a kind of a fancy residential complex. It's multi-stage, multi-storied, and it has a parking garage that's multi-storied too, that's right on Biscayne Bay. And there's a guy named Richard Conlon who lives there, and he went out into the garage one day to get his car, go to work. And the whole garage is just full of water, and then it's kind of backlit with this green fluorescent light that's, you know, above everything in this garage. And so he's gingerly sort of slushing through the water to go to his car, and he sees these rubbery limbs flop around. And it's, you know, a live octopus about this twice the size of a large pizza. So he does what you would do or I would do. He gets out his phone and he starts taking pictures and he puts it on Facebook and it becomes a meme. And eventually since it's security, they get the octopus back out of the garage and into the water and it's safe again, I think. But I started looking into this and it's really a story about climate change. And the reason it's a story about climate change is because the way the octopus got into the parking garage was through a storm drain that went from that level of the parking garage all the way down to Biscayne Bay. And the exit of that storm drain is supposed to be above the water line. And so all the water that gets into the parking garage is supposed to drain into Biscayne Bay. What happened instead is because of sea level rise, pipes like this one are now underwater. And when the tides shift in significant ways, the water reverses up the pipe. And there was this poor little octopus got flushed backwards and then popped into it. And, and so I thought, I, geez, if we can't keep sea life out of parking garages, what else can't we do with climate change? And here's what I like about this story. And I think because you're very interested, obviously, into communicating stories, getting people engaged and motivated. And one of the things I found talking about this story on book tours is, first of all, people remember it. It's pretty interesting just to think about the simple physics involved of something like this. And it's non-threatening, right? So you can say to yourself, oh my gosh, that was like a really weird thing that climate change might cause and I never would have imagined. There must be lots of weird things that are going to be happening that I can't imagine. Not all of them are about death and destruction. Some of them are. If I had opened the book talking about a family that lost their home in the Paradise Fire, that would have been perfectly appropriate and perfectly accurate. But it might have been a downer, right? You might have said, some readers might have said, you know, I'm just not up for that right now. That's kind of scary to me. I'd rather not think about it. I know that you have a lot of the younger adults and so on who listen to your show. I've given this talk to middle schools. I gave a, a talk to a school called Open Window, which is outside of Seattle in Washington State. Had students from first grade all the way up to eighth grade. 
And I just started with the octopus story, showed him a big slide of the octopus, showed him what the drain looked like and how the water pushed backwards. And the students were just fascinated in the science story. They're like, oh, that's a problem. And then we started to say, okay, so what would you do to keep octopuses out of pipes? What would you do to keep them out of garages? And it was a little puzzle that was interesting to talk about. And then we could gradually talk about more significant things. And, and I think that all people are like that. You get them with a hunting story, you get them with a parking garage story, and, and you try to pull them in by getting them engaged and interested first. It's also, it's an adaptation story because as we know, octopuses are very adaptable yeah. and, and we're adaptable in the way that we can eat so many things. But I noticed there's this you know, limited cognition. We often say yeah. we have limited cognition, but I often feel like it's us humans who have limited cognition because they are, animals are so focused on survival and adaptation. And if they could eat everything, they would be fine. <laughs> like the yeah. problem that they die out is because they have a, their bodies just won't allow them to eat or live in certain climates. You know, a bird sees something on the horizon, it's gone. It doesn't think about its home and worry about all its possessions and no. So, but we have that limited cognition, which is, so I think we can learn a lot from animals about adaptation. Yeah, I think that's right. I actually do. As you know, in the book, I kind of look at certain characteristics of octopuses and say, hey, you know, for instance, they will change what they eat if they need to. There's actually really interesting science that says that some octopuses and squids can actually alter their RNA, can actually alter their genetic material in order to survive different kinds of water temperatures. I think that's really interesting because what you're saying is exactly right, is that, that people get in ruts, whole societies get in ruts where they won't eat, you know, we don't eat insects so much in North America. Maybe we'd be better off if we could, or if we did, you know, these kinds of things. And actually, there's a chapter in my book, you know, where I go back and I look at humans and pre-humans all the way back. The last one million years of our history has been marked by very dramatic climate changes. They've been slow motion ones. They've been natural ones. They're nothing like what we're facing now. But the story over a million years is that the human and pre-human species evolved in many ways to adapt to many kinds of climates, whether it's life on the Serengeti or whether it's life in the tundra or life in a cave or whatever it is. Part of that is we had a huge amount of time to develop new genetic design. But part of it is our big brain made it possible to culturally change. And there are a lot of scientists who say language, even religion and art, the use of technology like flints for fire and stones for cutting, so much of that cultural change happened in response to trying to live in places we weren't used to living, including socializing because you can't live in an inhospitable place on your own without friends. And so even the idea of governance, even the idea of collective action is something that we evolved to be really good at because we had to live in places that were inhospitable. So I kind of use that as a metaphor too, as I say, yes, we get stuck in ruts, but our big brains are able to change the way we work with each other. They're able to see around corners and to plan. That's our calling card. And we should be able to reclaim that. You know, the irony is that our big brains got us into this problem because without them, we wouldn't be burning coal 
But our big brains are also going to get us out of it if it does, because it's going to allow us to imagine futures that don't exist yet and ways of communicating and being with people that we can't imagine yet either. So what do you think when you hear Earth needs a good lawyer? Oh, right. That is the the phrase from Earth Justice. Melody, I think that's a really good point because what this really raises is this issue about the extent to which law, and I'll say policy too, sort of government structure, how can government structure contribute to getting us where we need to be? And I think the answer has to be significantly. <laughs> the reason is, honestly, we have the technology, we have the science, we have the information. It would be nice to have more of all of that, but we can get to net zero carbon with the technology we have. What we need is a way to organize ourselves. And one of the ways that we organize ourselves is through law and through policy, right? That's what law really is sort of trying to set a framework for living with each other. And we have lots of good laws that could be used to get us out of some of these messes, but we also need some new laws too, internationally and domestically. I'm going to just pick up on the Earth Needs a Good Lawyer because I think about this case in Montana and some of these other litigation, some of these lawsuits in which young people and others have sued oil and gas companies, or in the case of the Montana case, have actually sued their own state saying, look, you're engaging in policies that are hurting us all. And so we're going to use law that already exists to show that you're doing something that is not right, right? The way people should look after one another. And I think one of the great advantages of our legal system in the United States is it's pretty flexible. So you can have a, a provision or a few provisions in the Montana Constitution that talks about the importance of a healthy environment. And you can go into a court and if you can convince a judge with the right facts, with the right science, that the state is doing something that's hurting people. The legal system is flexible enough to acknowledge that. So I don't know where we're going to go with that case. It's going to be appealed, obviously, and it's limited only to Montana in a technical sense. But, but I'm very encouraged by those kinds of moves. And I think it takes young people, honestly, to have the creativity to imagine things like that to take a flexible law and to say, let's make it into something or push it in a direction that no one's seen before. And kind of branching off of that thought and the thought that you had earlier talking about cities, I did live in San Francisco. Now I live here in Berkeley, so more of the kind of suburban city-ish life now. But why do you think it's challenging to encourage cities to implement more environmental policies? Although it may be more expensive at the moment, overall, we do consider these movements better off financially in the future. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think a lot about, because I'm a lawyer, right, is what are different scales of government good at. And a lot of resilience, as you know, is at the local level. You know, mayors probably have the hardest job in the whole world in terms of politicians because there's so much, you know, garbage collection, personal security, housing prices, so many things they have to worry about. And so they're good at understanding what communities need, what communities want, water and flooding, you know, these kinds of things. Where they fall short at the local level is with resources, even a city like Berkeley. Because if you're going to redo your stormwater treatment program, dollars, right? And you probably need a lot of technical support, particularly if you're going to design something that includes sea level rise projections and precipitation change projections. So all that's really got to come, you know, from the federal government, maybe 
the state of California, you know, has its own scientists and so on to work on it. But that's a really expensive thing. And you don't necessarily need 50 of those. What you need is like one super place that that produces a lot of information you know, and big universities like Berkeley and Stanford and UCLA and so on. So what we need is a system where the federal government, I think, you know, makes things available to cities. So part of it is resources. Another part of it, frankly, is mixed incentives. And the people in charge of local zoning and local building codes are really interested in property tax, tax revenue, and having more people live in their community because that makes it successful. So you've got local government, in many cases, really wanting people to live in places that might not necessarily be so safe. And you've got the federal government putting the fire out. So it's hard for the mayor to say no to something like that. So I'm from Nevada, as mentioned before. We have a lot of wildfires in Nevada, particularly around Lake Tahoe and that sort of thing. And our state of Nevada doesn't require communities to have certain kinds of building codes or zoning codes to prevent wildfire. You know why? Because it's better for the local politicians in the short term to have more people building expensive things there and then taxing it. And nobody wants people to be harmed by fire, but it's just one of those incentives. So also what you kind of touched upon was, I feel like natural disasters, especially with your book, the title, Octopus in the Parking Garage. How have you thought of environmental laws? Do you think they're being improved within local regions to prevent large natural disasters? Or do you feel like the climate's changed too much for any type of like local government or just government in general to keep up? I think it's really hard for local governments to keep up. I mean, I think you see this with the heat waves, right? So I grew up in Las Vegas and I have certainly, as a kid, I remember times when it was 115 degrees outside during the summertime, but that was like a single day. And now, as you know, you get weeks of that. In Phoenix, you got weeks of that. My family tells me that in Las Vegas, they had weeks of that, right? And it comes to a point where you really have to have some forward-looking ideas. And I think that we still get stuck. So I'll just give you a very quick example that, that I mentioned in the book, a, a woman named Cynthia Zimreno Moore, who grew up very close to a neighborhood I grew up in, in Las Vegas. And she was affected really badly by wildfire smoke. And her child was too, who had allergies. And I write about that. You wouldn't think of Las Vegas as being affected by wildfire, but it is, right? Uh, and it's also really affected by heat. And so she started out as a real estate agent and then doing some other things. And because of her son and because of other people in her community who were affected by air pollution, she got interested in pollution. And then she got interested in climate change. And the last time I talked to her, she was working on trying to pass a state law that would guarantee for outdoor workers shade, rest, and water, because there is no law in Nevada that guarantees those things to outdoor workers, like construction workers and agricultural workers and garbage collectors and you know on and on. There actually in Arizona is no law that does that. In Texas, it's against the law for municipalities to require those things for their workers. And so there's just like a very small thing that has to be changed along with so many other things, right? And I think it, it's almost overwhelming to think about all of the little changes that have to happen. And that's why I think that what you need is states, many states have this, some do anyway, to have a kind of resilience officer or an office in the state that's designed to say, let's just look at everything 
and say what has to change, you know, to say that, hey, we have to build slides on playgrounds differently so people don't scorch their legs. Or, hey, we have to make sure that there are awnings in playgrounds. Or in Las Vegas, the buses don't run frequently enough. So people stand outside at the bus stop and pass out because it's so hot, right? So you either have to have an air-conditioned place or you have to make the buses run more regularly or, you know, but it's too much for everybody in every agency to think about the little part of that. You, you, I think you need somebody in charge to just look at the whole thing and come up with some solutions. But I think it's possible and cities do it. But I think you, you are absolutely right. What's your sense, Melody, of what's going on in Berkeley? Do you, see, do you see any efforts to sort of build resilience in the city? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there's a huge difference between the Bay Area and then I originally grew up in the Inland Empire, Riverside. Uh, oh, right. So that's, okay. That's like, so I completely hear what you're saying. In Riverside, like, it's very hot standing out in the sun, especially in San Bernardino, too. And there have been incidents of people passing out waiting for the bus and stuff like that. I grew yeah. up in public transportation. So that really hit home when you said, you know, that about like Las Vegas not having buses come up on time. So I think especially for somebody who did grow up using public transportation in like a suburban community outside of Los Angeles, like yeah. it is completely drastic than me coming up to the Bay Area where I have three bus lines right next to me and I'm right next to the barn. Like that's extremely different than, you know just what I grew up in, you know what I mean? I don't have a car. And that's like a huge thing as well. And like you said, that's the amazing thing about cities is that you do tend to have ways to be more efficient with how you live yeah. and everything. It's the history is here and there's just no history in my suburban community. And there's no history in Las Vegas. They do try their best. Like I know that technically Las Vegas has one of the best water efficient systems in like the entire country, which is incredible and phenomenal because especially with like the large golf courses you guys have and everything, it, it's still incredible to hear like some resilience in that way. But yeah, Las Vegas does not have history, environmental change or anything. It's just here in the area they have. I think history and like people's social confidence really does affect what can happen in your city. And I think that's what's really important of youth because we've mm -hmm. lived through that. We lived through that. We now have technology and we know what's going on. So tell me that this is something that I asked a number of people. There are a number of sort of young advocates and activists in my book that I write about and that I interview. And I often ask them if they thought there was a difference between the environmentalists of the baby boomer generation or the Gen X generation compared to the generation of people who are in high school or in college these days. Do you think there's a difference? I do think there's a difference for sure. I would say that like my generation is very concerned about the environment. That's true. Like we've tried our best, but I would say the younger generation as well. You know, I interview a young woman in the book. Her name is Kama Cannon and she is a scuba diver and she's in high school right now. And she is actually the principal investigator on peer review studies on coral. And she's one of the youngest master divers in the United States. And she's working a lot on coral restoration. That is actually raising with these big foundations, raising coral offshore in nurseries and then transplanting them onto dying reefs and hopefully re rehabilitating them. So how does Kama get involved in all of this, right? She gets involved in it when she is in middle school. She lives in Key West. The science part of her school, from her own account, is not appealing to young girls. And so she decides to take a scuba diving class with a club of middle schoolers. Most of them are girls. 
And she's got an incredible teacher who is a former marine scientist who says, okay, now it's been a few weeks. What we're going to start doing is learning biology. And then they go down there with their little underwater notebooks and they're, you know, writing things down and learning things. And the next thing you know, she's working in coral nurseries. And almost every girl in that program, you know, 13, 14 years old, wants to be a marine scientist, and including Kama. And I just think this is like such a wonderful thing because I interviewed her about this and I said, you know, are you political at all? What do you think about the older generations and so on? And she's like, oh, I'm not political at all. I'm not Democratic. I'm not Republican. I'm not anything. I just like Coral. And then she speaks at town halls. She goes to protests against more cruise liners coming into the harbor. She does all these things. I said, those are all political things. And she says, no, I just like coral reefs and I'm just teaching people about the science. And I just love that, right? Because she's found a window and she's just going to build this thing and hold people to account because she loves something. And that's what I love about, about younger generations. I think they fall in love more easily. And I think that is the key to so much of this. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's that curiosity and talking about learning from the natural world. We're talking about resilience in cities of the future. And I think a lot of people don't realize that coral reefs, one big living organism. Oh my God. Upon which all these other organisms live. But it's one organism, which is giant. (laughs) It's an underwater city and it feeds its inhabitants, which is kind of if you want to think about living skyscrapers. And I think that some skyscrapers are learning from this. So, I mean, if we could one day be as resilient as coral has the potential to be if we don't have ocean acidification, of course. But if something is cool, you know, for young people or for anyone, it makes it much easier to get on board. It's not a drudgery. And I want to just say to that point about the resilience of cities, you know, in Europe, of course, we have the Covenant of Mayors, we have the C40. I think if a city has been built, especially before the invention of the car, it's a lot easier to make those adaptations back to the 15-minute city. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, some of our cities had those things in the U.S. and then they were destroyed. A lot of Los Angeles had a streetcar system, right? And it it was later bought up and then taken apart. I'm lucky enough to be in New Orleans where we have the oldest existing streetcar system. I know San Francisco has one that's very old too. And and they're wonderful, you know, to get around. As we dive into the stories of climate resilience, it's essential to find a lens that resonates with people. Professor Vernschuk highlights the power of humor over the doom and gloom approach. A touch of humor or strength can engage us more effectively in a world of overwhelming climate concerns. Speaking of resilience, Vercheck mentioned Louisiana has lost an area the size of Delaware due to rising sea levels. For me, it was both a personal and a staggering fact. With this, Professor Vercheck brings an intriguing perspective. He suggests that cities like New Orleans and San Francisco should become denser. Funny enough, hearing that the city my father grew up in and the one I currently live adjacent to needs to embrace the same idea creating denser cities to prevent larger climate disasters and decreasing our carbon footprint if done efficiently, it's been shown to work. It's a thought-provoking twist on building resilience, isn't it? And now, back to the interview. You mentioned something there, and 
This is what's frustrating for some people about these big organizations or the EPA. Uh, the one is slow moving and we have to understand this yeah. take a long time. But also you mentioned about sometimes legislation. You said it was illegal to provide protection from the sun. You know, it seems wrong headed to people from outside, like they're almost protecting the companies, you know, before they protect the people. Maybe they don't have the powerful lobbies behind them. Or when you think about the case with the PFAS, the forever. Yeah. But it's taken a long time for legislation and action to, to take place. So that's a frustrating thing. And often, I know that you're board president of the Center for Progressive Reform. And, yeah. and often people from marginalized communities or lower income brackets, they don't have that political or economic power to speak out, to, to form a strong lobby. So what are your thoughts on climate resilience, regeneration, and environmental justice? Well, I think that the environmental justice part is extremely important because it's the people who are more marginalized historically and for other reasons that have the most to lose, right? Because they're the ones who are taking the bus in the areas with the heat waves. Heat waves, as you know, is the biggest killer among natural disasters, and it disproportionately affects black and brown people and, and also older adults. So yeah, there there are real issues with that. One thing I want to point out about changing laws in states is it does happen. So I have a podcast too, it's called Connect the Dots. And in the last season, we did a whole series of what we called climate wins. And one of the areas where groups of people have actually accomplished something significant. And for instance, in the state of Maryland, which has a Republican governor, they passed a climate action law that has enforcement on climate justice that actually requires planning around climate change and then requires a commitment to looking at disadvantaged communities. That just didn't happen to get passed. It got passed because there was a group of people who worked through coalitions and pushed and pushed and pushed, and the Republican governor uh, allowed it to pass. He didn't veto it. So that was a win, right? In Maine, there is a similar law or a law about climate that got passed that requires the electric utility regulators to come up with plans to show how they are going to reduce carbon pollution over the next few years. And that, again, was small groups getting together. The thing about it is these were small groups. They had to get together. They had to learn to work together, which means that sometimes one group's priorities got left or compromised, and that just had to happen. There was a certain amount of compromising going forward. And then they just kept doing it and doing it. So Cynthia Moore in Nevada was unsuccessful in getting that worker safety law passed in Nevada. And what are they doing now? They're working for next year, you know, because often if you see these wins, they didn't happen the first year. They happened the second year, they happened the third year. And it takes a, an enormous amount of commitment, right? And hopefulness to do it, but it can be done. Yeah, we just spoke to Sue Inches and Maine, of course, is an interesting case with the yeah. smallness of the population of the it state. Is, yeah. She he said that legislators there just need to hear from five people. I guess it's, yeah, it's true, right? This is hardly a coalition. Okay, so five people. Obviously, yeah. in other states, it's going to be more. But if you just think about it proportionately, if you get five passionate people or proportionally what you need in your state, they start paying attention 
And it doesn't have to be as many as you might think it has to be. As long as you're passionate and dedicated, they'll start listening to you. And what's nice with Maine then is then it gets passed in a small state and then it can, that has that ripple effect into other states. Yeah. And I think one of the important parts is you have to understand the economics of the situation. If you can persuade people that the economy is not going to lose money or that this is actually good in the long run. That it's not always the silver bullet, but I think that you have to run your numbers and make sure that you can make the economic case too. Yeah. And I had always thought like China was like a serial polluter with, you know, being such a strong manufacturing mm. bank. But they've appointed a thousand judges just to adjudicate on environmental crimes. So economically, they are seeing that it makes more sense to stop these things happening than to deal yeah. with repercussions later. So there's all these positive things, whether it's the case in Montana or hearing this from China or the young environmental advocates in Germany who also won their case, you know. So I think that we'll be seeing more of this and hopefully it'll be just implementation. Before, I mean, we need laws, but we'll be able to just implement without saying you're breaking the law. Yeah. Well, I'll just, you know, I'll say one thing about this Montana case. It's so interesting about this case is there were scientific experts and economic experts that testified a, a lot about all of these things. And then you have a court that actually has to decide what's true, like what are the facts of the particular situation. And the plaintiffs, the, the trust representing the, the young people, they had to say two things. They had to say, one, you know, climate change is real and it is really hurting things. And that was an easy one to establish. And then the second thing they had to show was that there's actually something Montana could do that would fix at least some of this problem. And what the court found is that there was enough evidence in the record to show that if it wanted to, the state of Montana could eliminate its greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And that if they did that, Montanans would save 70% on their energy bills in the future. Now, that's just not somebody saying that on TV. That's a judge saying, I looked at evidence presented to me from both sides, and this is the truth. And, and that's a very strong statement. That's what's interesting, because this case, as I say, I think is going to get appealed. But those facts are going to stick, right? Appellate courts don't change the facts. They just look and see that the law was applied correctly. And I think that that's a very strong statement that other states could use too, is a look, your state could be saving your people money and it's not. Yeah, people listen to that, you know, right or left, people want to save yeah. money, they want to live better lives. You can't really argue with that with the numbers. So through your books, through your podcasts, you believe in the importance of telling stories. What's the importance of the environmental humanities? Well, I was an English major in college. And so I believe that the strongest empathy machine that we have is literature. The best way to get people to feel what someone else is feeling is through literature and through stories. And I also think that feeling and emotion is an important part of reasoning and governing, too. It's not the only part. But I think you have to understand how people see the world and how they feel about the world. And so in my law classes, I teach policy classes. I often assign novels. We read in some of, in one of my classes, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the case about a hypothetical hurricane in Florida written by Zora Neale Hurston. We read Oryx and Crake, which is by Margaret Atwood, a kind of dystopian novel that involves climate change. We've read Handmaid's Tale in my classes. But I think what these books do is they, number one, certain books that are speculative, like Margaret Atwood's work or George Carol Oates has written some things like this too. What's interesting about them is that open up our imaginations. 
and they say, oh, I never thought something like that could happen. We hope it doesn't, but it could, right? And so how do we, that changes the way we look at the future. And it also changes, I think, the way that we understand people's lives. So even in a book like Their Eyes Were Watching God, which takes place in the early 20th century and obviously involves race issues and a whole lot of other things, it leads us to think to see the world through a, a young black woman's perspective in the early 20th century. And there's something about that exercise of being able to, in some way, to some extent, put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. And I think that's really important for governance. I think it's really important for policy. I think it's really important for advocates of any kind, because listening and trying to understand what another person is perceiving is really, you can never do it completely, obviously, but I think it is really one of the most important parts of collective action, of working with other people. Yeah, definitely, because, you know, then we're not alone and we feel stronger when we're not alone. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. There's all these other voices and people behind us. And you mentioned machines, of course, we, they, and you think about the future and of AI and the new technologies. How could they help accelerate the transition? Well, there are good stories and bad stories. So the good stories are, oh my gosh, renewable energy is just a wonderful technology story with solar panels getting as cheap as almost anything, wind turbine technology. We're working on offshore wind farm planning in the Gulf right now, and we're going to build wind turbines that can survive hurricanes, right? So there's a lot of technology going on in energy storage, which involves batteries. And I'm hoping that at some point we're going to get to batteries that don't use things like lithium so much so that we don't have to be involved so much in the mining of those kinds of things. There's a lot of really interesting technology going on with using natural landscapes to, to protect against flooding and storms. So we have a coastal restoration effort in Louisiana, one of the largest in the world. And what we're experimenting with is diverting water from the Mississippi River to replenish sediment and grow new wetlands on our tattered shores. And that's technology, too. I mean, we've got some of the best engineering firms in the world down here and NASA trying to figure out exactly how to do that. And if we can do it, we'll export that technology all over the place and help rebuild coastlines. So those are some really bright spots in terms of the technology that I see. Yeah, it's so exciting, that wetlands project. And a lot of people don't realize wetlands create carbon capture in the oceans too, cooling. It's huge. Where would we be without nature? So we have to learn all we can from it. So thank you. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Find out who you are and then pursue what you love. And then ask yourself, how is climate going to affect that in the future? And that will start you off on a course of inquiry. And I hope talking to other people in your networks and then maybe doing something, however small, to make that problem a little better. I think that's an easier way than saying, oh, I want to be a climate warrior. I got to find me some climate friends and join a climate organization. Find out who you are and then pursue who you are through this lens. Yeah, because then you'll do anything to protect what you love. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Rob Verchik. It's been a very inspiring conversation. Thank you for your dedication to environmental law, climate change adaptation, and for sharing your scientific and public policy knowledge, imparting the importance of acting today, and that we have solutions and resilience to live sustainably.
We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Nia Funk and Melody Garza with the participation of collaborating university and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Melody Garza. One Planet Podcast is produced by Nia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garner. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in the One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at teamoneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.